Hey, uh, yeah, turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And let's just open with the word of prayer as we come to God's word. Lord Jesus, we just thank you that we can gather around you this morning. I thank you, Lord, for the written word of God that leads us to the living word of God. And Jesus, it's, it's our heart's desire to sit at your feet this morning, be taught by you. And so, Jesus, we pray that your spirit would just come and minister to us the word of God, that you would reveal truth to our hearts, that, God, the seed of your word would take root in our hearts and in our lives, and that you would be glorified, that you would produce your fruit and the abundant life of Christ in us. And so, Jesus, we offer our, our hearts and our lives to you. We come with open hearts, Lord. And now we pray that your spirit would just guide this time in the word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, so we've been, we got rocking a few weeks back into a new series in 2 Corinthians. We're in uh, chapter 2, and as we come to chapter 2, Paul is going to continue to kind of just reveal his heart for the Corinthian church and their particular situation and his relationship with them. Now, uh, it's, it's well established as you go through the book of 2 Corinthians that the relationship between Paul... And between this church, uh, at this point in time, was, was strained. And uh, the church in Corinth had leaders that had come in amongst them who had established themselves. And in seeking to establish themselves, they had made sure that they had taken shots at the Apostle Paul. And his ministry and his teaching and his apostleship. And as we saw when we were in chapter 1, uh, to make matters worse, you know, Paul had communicated that he was coming uh, to see them, to visit them, and he didn't show up as planned. And so the church had accused him of fickleness, of being untrustworthy. And so in response to those who had brought these charges against Paul and to deal with some further things within the church, he writes this letter to them and he bears his heart. It's, it, it's, Paul just puts his heart on the table in this letter, and I, I love that about it. And he addresses their concerns. He takes time to teach them about ministry and about what ministry is and what it's all about. And, you know, as we saw back in chapter 1, just to remind you a little bit about where we've been, it, Paul first talked about suffering. He talked about their suffering. He talked about his own personal suffering and how uh, his suffering had led to his change of plans and him not showing up as, as had been planned. And he shared how God uses suffering to develop in us a heart for ministry. How God, God's desire, the, 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 the first key to ministry is to having compassion for people. And so God uses our, our suffering to develop that compassion for people that we're to have. And then Paul got into talking about the second key to ministry and it was this, confidence in God. Confidence in God. And, and Paul talked about his confidence in God, how his belief in the promises of God was transforming his character and, and caused him to be continued to be motivated and to have the character of God and to do the work of ministry. And so we saw these, these two keys, compassion for people and confidence in God. And so chapter one actually closed with Paul stating that it was never his desire to be Lord over this church, but that... Uh, his, his true heart was that he would work for their joy and for their benefit and so that they would grow into, in their faith. And so as we come to chapter 2, Paul carries on with this defense of himself. It's going to go on for lots of chapters. And he's going to reveal uh, some of the, the heart motivation behind the change of his plans. 
They might have criticized him. They might have accused him of being fickle. They might have accused him of being unreliable, untrustworthy. But Paul is going to share the motivation of his heart for the change of plans. And he's going to say this, my plans changed because I love you. His true motivation for the change of his plans was his love for these people. So let's check it out. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 1 says this, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? Now like, like I have already said, this, this relationship between Paul and this church had been a painful one. The church was full of division. It was full of marks of immaturity. They were lax in the matters of dealing with issues of sin. There were scandals within this church. And, and the fact of the matter was that Paul's last visit to Corinth had been painful for him. It had been painful for them. It had been a heavy. It was grieving. It, it annoyed him. Do you ever have any of those kind of relationships in your life? <laughs> like, oh man, do we have to go visit that relative? Do we have to see that old friend? That relationship grieves me. It annoys me. It's heavy. It's painful when we have to get together. We all have those kind of relationships in our lives, don't we? Well, Paul actually says, for if I caused you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pain? What he's saying is this. This is mutually painful. <laughs> it's not just painful for me. It's painful for you. And you know, often when I consider the painful relationships in my life, I don't consider them to be mutually painful. You know, I, I can quickly identify the role of the other party <laughs> in causing pain in this relationship. I, I, you know, and I imagine it's the same for you too. I, I can be blind to my part, to my role in the contentious relationship. Now, Paul actually knew that he had a role in this contentious, strained relationship. His last visit was painful. So rather than make another painful visit, he said, I, I, I wrote a letter to confront the issues among you, issues of sin, issues of maturity. Now, because of the scandals that were going on in this church, uh, because of the visit that, that Paul could have made would have been so uncomfortable, he didn't want to visit the Corinthian church, but he wanted to know the issues were being dealt with. And so he wrote this letter. And the reason... His reasoning was this for not going, you know, again, why would I cause us both mutual pain? <laughs> Our relationship should be a source of joy. They were brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ, a church and their founding a pastor, apostle. And uh, at this point, Paul decided it's just easier to keep a healthy distance. Got any of those relationships in your life where healthy distance is just the safest and best place? You know, sometimes broken relationships need a little room. They need space so that people can get their stuff together. And Paul didn't want to be on the church all the time for, you know, being their disciplinarian. He just, so he just said, it's better for me to back off. So verse three says this, and I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of all of you. And so all things considered, Paul concludes, rather than another painful visit, a letter's the best way to go. Now verse four. So I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish and heart, of heart and with many tears, 
not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, Paul's hope was that this letter would get the painful work out of the way so that the, they could move on in their relationships so that the church could grow in maturity. And that when he actually came to the point in time when he would make it back to Corinth, the, the visit could be enjoyable for everybody because the church had taken the time to deal with the stuff that they needed to deal with. Now, it seems as though on some point, Paul's letter, this letter that he sent to them, did not uh, totally achieve the desired effect. On a certain level, you know, as we're going to see, it had. Actually, it was on this level. There was, a, there was a serious matter in the church in Corinth that Paul was addressing in this letter that he's referencing. There was a member of the church. A lot of people, a lot of commentators, Bible, Bible scholars believe that he was likely in leadership. And he was involved in an immoral relationship uh, with a woman in the church. The two of them were shacked up together. Uh, but to make it worse than that, a leader being involved in this immoral relationship, it was an incestuous relationship. He's living with his stepmother, which is weird <laughs> to say the least. And, you know, we talked about Corinth being a sexually charged city. It was a sexually immoral culture, much like the culture that we live in. And, you know, as people were coming into the family of God, they were learning about healthy boundaries and biblical sexuality. The case is, you know, that case in point is true within our culture too. As, as people grow in Christ, as they come into relationship with Christ, they have to learn about biblical sexuality and what's healthy and what's godly and what is moral according to the scripture. But this issue in this particular church was not only incestuous, but this man, probably involved in church leadership, was bragging about the relationship. It, he was bold. He was proudly flaunting what was happening, and the church was doing nothing about it. And so Paul addressed the issue by, not by visiting the church, but sending a letter that we know well, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 actually is the chapter where Paul talks about this specific situation. So you can see why Paul didn't want to make another painful visit to Corinth and why he used the letter. But hear his heart for the church, verse 4. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now I'd say this, Paul wasn't enjoying this whole situation. It was hard for him. He said, the letter I wrote, I wrote with tears. It was never his goal to further strain the relationship, but he actually wrote that letter so that church would know his love for them. Paul's motivation in this relationship was, was love. He was motivated by his love. He wrote in love. He wrote in tears, and I would guess, as I read this, that it blew up in his face. Ever had that happen? You know, in a relationship, something that you did with an attitude of love, with maybe tears towards another person, and the recipient interprets your heart and your intention in a whole other way, and the thing blows up in your face. Ever had that happen? You know, often a person who takes time to speak a word of correction is viewed as the, as, by the other party as an enemy, 
And sometimes they are, but usually when, when they say what they say, it's because they love us. They speak correction because love will confront. Love will bring discipline. It's the father who actually loves his child who will discipline their child and bring correction into that child's life. You know, it's the uncaring, unloving father who does nothing to discipline his child and allows them to develop character flaws which will wreak havoc and ruin and destroy their lives and in their relationships. And Paul says this, I was motivated by my love for you. A personal visit would be too painful, but I love you, so I sent a letter. Now what's Paul, Paul saying is this, you accuse me of being fickle, you say that I'm unreliable, you say that I'm untrustworthy, and what you fail to recognize is that I acted towards you in love. I don't know what that was. <laughs> See, immaturity, I would say this. Immaturity does not recognize the corrective nature and aspect of love. Immaturity does not recognize the corrective nature and aspect of love. You know, I was thinking about it. When I moved to Prince George, I was 17 years old. I packed up, I got out of Dodge, out of Gibson's as quick as I could after high school. And uh, when I got up there, my mom and dad told me, get a job and get your place rented and get set up. And when you get 500 bucks saved, I was 17, we'll co-sign a loan for you and you can purchase a car. And so I, I got a job and I started saving my money. And I learned that in Prince George, when it's like minus 25, that your nose hairs freeze when you're waiting for the bus. That was a whole new experience. And, and I worked and I saved my money and then I called my mom and dad and I said, I've got my 500 bucks. I need you to co-sign that loan. And they said, you know, we've changed our minds. As your parents, we don't think we're doing you a favor by helping you get in debt. We're not gonna co-sign a loan. And I was ticked. <laughs> I was ticked because now what am I going to do? Well, you know what I did? I bought a $500 1982 Toyota Corolla and I drove that car for two years and it was just fine. But because I was immature, I did not realize the wisdom of their decision. Instead, I viewed it as an unloving, uncaring action. Now, in hindsight, I know it was done in wisdom. See, immaturity does not recognize the corrective nature and aspect of love. And immaturity will not recognize the loving action as correction. As such, rather, immaturity will view it as an attack. That's what happens. It's, it, this is the attack of an enemy. And so often, uh, correction brings the other person out swinging. Because they think an enemy is acting in their life and they fail to recognize that it's love. Ever had that happen to you? <laughs> Where you do something lovingly and the other person comes out. We'll go toe-to-toe. -to -toe. I'll take you down. Whatever it is. And so, you know, the reality is, is that there, for Paul, there was no fix-all solution. But he gives us a good example. He says this. Or what he's saying is this. And what he's doing is this. When you find yourself in such a position, just reaffirm your love for the person. Reaffirm your love for that person. You know, that's why when you discipline your children... You should sit them down when it's time to discipline them and make sure that they know as painful as this discipline is for them and for you, that you love them and it's motivated 
by love. As much as you hate the consequences, as much as they hate the consequences, I am doing this because I love you. See, Hebrews tells us that, that we've all had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them all the more as we matured because we saw that they did it for our benefit, that they were motivated for love, by love. And so look at four, just verse four again for a moment. Paul says this, for I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. You know, when we minister for Christ in the church, in the marketplace, in our homes, with our neighbors, it is necessary that we take time to do heart work, our own heart work, so that our actions are motivated by love. See, as Christians, so time, you know, often our, our, our actions are motivated by all sorts of things. Obligation, duty, maybe, maybe out of a, a sense of the need to do religious works. But see, those things never produce what actions done in love will produce. You know, I was thinking about, you know what? Why are not more of our neighbors, you know, why do so many of our neighbors not know the good news of Jesus Christ? Why aren't they here with us in church worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ this morning? And I would say this, it's because we do not have an anguish of heart for them and we have certainly never possibly shed a tear like Paul did. Rather, it's obligation and it's duty and it's religious works and we need Christ to touch our hearts so that we'll shed tears for those in our lives around us. You know, D.L. Moody, the great American evangelist of the 19th century, saw thousands, tens of thousands of people come to Christ under his ministry. And it was said about D.L. Moody, that he could not speak of hell and of eternal damnation of the lost without shedding tears when he taught the word of God. And, you know, rather than shed a tear, we, what would we do in our culture and in, in church culture? We tend to rationalize away the reality of hell, rationalize away the, re, the eternal destiny of the lost because we don't know what it is to truly love the lost. And my prayers, you know, God make me a man like Paul. God make us as people like D.L. Moody who would weep over the condition of the lost around us, over their hearts, over their lives. See, Paul says that the heart of my ministry was love, abundant love. Where's your heart at this morning? You know, if you were to do a heart check, where's your heart at? May the Holy Spirit just check our hearts right now. Lord, give us soft hearts, we pray. Soft hearts. Where the deceitfulness of riches has taken root. Where the lies of this world have taken root. Where the pain caused by enemies and those who have hurt us have taken root. We need God to soften our heart and hearts. So that we reach out to the lost around us. Shed tears. Be motivated by love. Amen? Verse 5, Paul says this. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, 
But in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you, for such a one, the punishment by the majority is enough. So now Paul begins to address this whole matter of the sinful man in the church who was involved in this sexually immoral relationship. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, Paul instructed the church that they should hand that man over to Satan. That's, that's harsh, eh? I mean, I have a hard time comprehending that. He, they said, he said, hand him over to Satan, discipline him. And so uh, rather than ignore this grossly immoral relationship, the church confronted it. He, he said, confront it. And it was painful for Paul to say that. It was painful for the man. It was painful for the church. But they went about the work and God honored what they did. That's the beauty of it. He honored what they did and the man was led to repentance. He repented before the church. He, he turned from his sin. And so now Paul warns the church about something that is very important. The danger of overreaction. He says the punishment by the majority is enough. Look at verse 7. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you. Reaffirm your love for him. Convince the repentant person that you love him. That's what Paul says. You know, it's, it's, it's really tough to discipline someone for sin. But then after you do all that, it's tough to know what to do with them afterwards. You ever been caught in that situation? You're like, oh, okay, well, they repented. Do I need to bring more thunder? Do I need to put them on the bench? Do they need to sit out for a while? Do we need to just make them pay a little more? <laughs> what do we do with the repentant person? Are there, should we take other measures? Is there exclusion that should happen now? Do they have to sit in the kitchen? How does it work? Well, Paul says this. Don't be too severe. Don't be too severe. Receive the repentant person back. You know, sometimes as us Christians, you know, we're more gracious Christians, more gracious to the unsaved person than to the believer sitting next to us in church. Isn't it true? You know, we forget that none of us is above any other person here. Any of us could fall into sin as easy as the next person. So when a believer repents of their sin, Paul says, receive him back. Receive him back. Forgive him and comfort him. We're to forgive the way that Christ forgave us. The scripture tells us that that. As far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our sins from us. Don't hang your brother's sin over his head. Remove it as far as the east is from the west. The scripture tells us that the Lord has cast our sin into the sea of forgetfulness. The Lord remembers my sin no more. What a great thing that is. Do the same for your repentant brother. Forget about it. <laughs> Do the same for your repentant brother. Forgive him and comfort him. Comfort. We looked a lot at that word comfort in our first message in this series. It's the Greek word parakleo. The scripture, the scripture attributes that word to our father in heaven. He is the God of all comfort. That word is also attributed to Jesus. We even sang it this morning. He's the wonderful counselor. He's our comforter. And of course, we know that the Holy Spirit is called our, our comforter. The ability to comfort, see the ability to comfort is at the very nature and essence of who God is. That word parakleo means this, to be brought to one side. That's God's nature. 
the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bringing people into his presence. See, that's what God did for us. He sent his son into a world estranged from him due to man's rebellion and sin. And his son Jesus bore our sin in his body on the tree. He died. He was buried and God raised him from the dead. And those who believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead and confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord, the scripture says they will be saved. They will be brought near to God as they put their faith in Christ. Sins forgiven. Where sin once kept them from the presence of God, now God will comfort them and bring them near. He's the God of all comforts. He brings us near. And so Paul says, when one repents of their sin, don't heap judgment on them. You don't need to add to their punishment. Rather forgive them, forget about it, and bring them near. Verse 9. He says, for this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything and anyone whom you forgive I also forgive. So, you know, he commends them for doing this act of discipline. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a neat thing to watch a parent lovingly discipline a child, isn't it? When it's done in a, in a good, healthy way. Have you ever had your kid throw a temper tantrum in the grocery store? Moms, have you ever had a kid throw a temper tantrum in a grocery store? Some of you are thinking about the parent down the aisle, and you're like, I know their kids throwing a temper tantrum. <laughs> Some of you are thinking, not my child. Yeah, right. You know, when a child throws a temper tantrum in the grocery store, I always think that it's a good thing that there's witnesses around. A lot of kids' lives have been preserved because of those witnesses. Amen. You know, when I was a kid, I never did anything like that that I know of. <laughs> but my mom tells one story that I was thinking about when we were in the grocery store and I was little. We were in the produce section, and I saw a woman take a strawberry, and she ate that strawberry. And I said, Mom, did you see that lady? She stole a strawberry. I saw her. She stole it. We moved out of the produce section and went down the next aisle, and there she was again. So I was sure to point her out. See her, Mom? That's her. That's the woman right there. She stole the strawberry. She ate it. I saw her. Into the next aisle. There she is again, Mom. That's her. Next aisle, there she is again, mom, I see her. Finally, the woman said, shut up, kid. <laughs> you know, if she would have repented, I could have forgiven her and comforted her. <laughs> Instead, she's a sermon illustration. Now, Paul commended the church when the discipline of the sinner went well. In fact, it was a, a test it was a test to see if they would be obedient. You know, maybe there's an issue that comes to mind for you right now and you think to yourself, I think God's calling me to bring discipline into this situation. In my home, in this particular relationship, in this situation, you know, God uses these things to test our obedience to him. I would say this, men of God... People of God engage chaos in their lives. 
The scripture tells us right at the start of Genesis, the earth was void and without form and the darkness was over the face of the deep and God engaged chaos. And how did he do it with his word? He spoke light into the situation. He said, let there be light. And there was light and God brought chaos. He, sorry, God brought order to chaos with his word and men of God engage chaos. Speak order into those things within your homes and your families and your relationship. Speak order. Engage the chaos. Now verse 10 says, or verse 10 continues. Indeed. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that the word would so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. You know that Satan has a design for you? You know that Satan has a design for this community? Satan has a design for this church. He has a design for your family, and it's all the same one. To kill, steal, and destroy. Peter said this in 1 Peter 5.8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. You know, I would say this, the moment you choose not to grant forgiveness is the moment you've been outwitted by Satan. Listen to this, because this is an important spiritual principle for our lives. The moment you choose not to grant forgiveness is the moment you've been outwitted by Satan. In fact, I would say that the believer who chooses not to forgive is a believer who has made a decision to live a defeated spiritual life. You cannot be unforgiving and know the triumph that is ours in Christ Jesus. You cannot cling to unforgiveness and know the triumphant Christian life. And if you choose unforgiveness, Satan has gained advantage over you. Gained advantage over your life. He has gained a greater part of you and he has taken a share that is not his to have. You know, to be ignorant is to lack knowledge. And Paul says, we are not ignorant. We are not ignorant of his schemes. You know, somebody was uh, telling me recently, uh, a few months back, they were telling me their story and how they came to Christ and gone through very traumatic past. And in the midst of that, they began to see a counselor. That counselor said to them, you have a right to be angry. I said, yeah, but I, I don't want to be angry. I don't want my life to be about angry. You have a right to be angry. You should be angry. Hold on to your anger. But I, but I don't want to be angry. I, I want to move past this situation. No, you should be angry. And so under someone's direction, they were led to a Christian counselor, eventually led to their salvation. The Christian counselor said, you got to bring it to God. You got to forgive. You got to get like God work in your heart. See, you cannot cling to unforgiveness and know the triumphant Christian life. Can I pick on a church culture pet peeve? Going to strike a note with some of you, but it pees me off. You know what pees me off? Blaming your earthly father for your inability to understand your heavenly father. 
I think that's unbiblical and I think it's wrong and I think it's a lie the church has bought into. You know who J.K. Rowling is? You know who she is? You won't often hear her quoted in church, but you'll hear her this morning. <laughs> She's the writer of those Harry Potter novels. She said this, read it in an email that was sent to me this week. There is an expiry date on blaming your parents for criticizing you for going the wrong direction. There's an expiry date. Do you know that God actually addresses the issue of blaming your father in the scriptures? He addresses it in more than one spot. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 18. Do it in your Bibles. It's going to come up on the screen, but it's, you need to see it in your Bibles too. It's a, it's a common discussion in the church. I can't understand my heavenly father because of my earthly father. Look, your, your heavenly father's perfect. Just picture the exact opposite. That's where your heavenly father is perfect. He loves you and it's true and it's good and it's real. And you need to accept it. You need to believe it. Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 1 says this. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating the proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. See, the Lord said this, you know, your father ate sour grapes. You eat sour grapes. Look, you can't blame him. The soul who sins is the soul who dies. Your dad will answer for his sin and you will answer for yours. And yours will be enough to condemn you. And his will be enough to condemn him. You can't blame him. You have to embrace your father who is in heaven, who loves you. You need to forgive. You need to forgive. God forgave your sin. God forgave your sin when your sin demanded your death. See, your unforgiveness is like demanding for the offender's death. But it's your relationship with God that will die. Your relationship with God. You know, there are situations where, you know, you need to go and you need to communicate to an offender that you forgive them. But there are other situations where the offender has never asked for forgiveness, won't ever. And unless God, you know, really clearly instructs you, I would say you don't need to go and let them know that you forgive them. But before God, you need to communicate forgiveness from your own heart. You know, I had an experience where uh, I'd been pretty wounded by somebody and I was, I was working through it. It was really fresh, really fresh. And I was ticked. I was angry. I had a right to be. I also had a part in what was going on. And, uh, and I was go going about doing my thing and it, it was just eating me up. And so I just thought, I got to do this. And so just with my mouth, I opened it and I said, God, I, I forgive. In this situation, I forgive. I bring it before you and I, I put it at the cross and I forget. I don't have the strength to do this right now, but I'm just going to open my mouth and I'm going to do it. And I had a wild experience where 
where God kind of spoke to me. You know, when the Lord does that from time to time, it's not like an audible voice, but impressed on my heart something very clearly. He would say that, he said this to me. You know the accusations that you're dealing with? You have an accuser that comes before me in my presence. In fact, he's here right now. And he's bringing accusations against you that are real, that are legitimate, that have merit, and that could lead to your condemnation. But you've put your trust in me, and I've prayed for you, and you will overcome. And the Lord communicated to me as as real as these were, there were accusations that were far bigger against my life. And that I had no right to hold against that person and be unforgiving and hang on to that anger because God had forgiven me when I was due much, had much greater crimes against him. See, the issue of forgiveness is an issue of, the issue of unforgiveness is an issue of triumph in Christ. You will not know or experience what Paul is talking about unless you forgive. Now, a little background about where this is about to go and where Paul's about to go. Because things were painful with the church, Paul did this. He sent the letter and then he sent Titus. He said, Titus, go to Corinth. Find out what's happening. Come back and report to me. Let's rendezvous in the city of Troas. And so that was the plan. And then maybe Paul would go to Corinth. Now let's see what actually happened. Verse 12. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. So here's Paul. He arrives in this city. Uh, he's got open doors to do ministry. And when I hear that, when I hear open doors of ministry, I'm thinking success. God is going to bless what Paul does in this city of Troas. But he says, I had no rest in my spirit. Titus meant enough to him. This situation in Corinth meant enough to him that Paul turned his back on an open door and he left the city. He left. He packed his bags and he continued down the road through Macedonia to make his way towards Corinth, hoping that he would meet up with Titus. And so Paul, I would say he's saying this, accuse me of whatever you want, Corinthian church, but you need to see my heart for you. I'm not fickle. I'm loving and I'm concerned. And when I couldn't find Titus, I started making my way towards you. Now verse 14, he says this, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God amongst those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Thanks be to God. Why, Paul says? Because God always leads us in triumphal procession. There's a cultural picture here that he is using that this church would understand and that we need some background on to get our minds around. What Paul is referencing is the return of a Roman general to the city of Rome. See, if a general had been sent out uh, on a military mission and had taken captive at least 5,000 people, 
A procession was planned for him in the city of Rome when he returned home. And so they would return home and it, it was all the pomp and ceremony that you can imagine. It's not, not like Disney World where I just was. <laughs> and that parade with Mickey Mouse and all that stuff. This was the real deal. Generals, soldiers, armies, music, priests waving their things of whatever, spreading fragrance all around. Slaves in tow, captured. Uh, those who were going to be set free and made Roman citizens walking along with them. And so Paul takes this picture and he says this, Christ is our general and Christ always moves forward in triumphal procession. And when we're walking with him, we're there with him, walking with him, those taken captive by him, but in the midst of that procession and through us, he spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Picture in your minds this great procession, this army and the priest just causing the incense to be burned as they offered things to their gods. And there was a fragrance in the air. Well, God says this, you leave a smell wherever you go. <laughs> to some, it's a bad smell. It's the smell of death. But to others, it is the smell of life. And Paul says, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that we always move forward in Christ in triumphal procession. You know, this Thanksgiving sprang from his heart, this deep seated conviction that God was working in him and through him. Regardless of the appearance of setbacks, regardless of this conflict going on with the Corinthians, regardless of not finding Titus, regardless of having to turn his back on an open door for ministry, Paul was convinced that when he followed Christ, he was moving forward in triumph. And this triumphant viewpoint of Paul is one of the great emphasis of, of this letter. He's going to continue to build on it. See, Jesus said, that he would, in Matthew chapter 16, that his church, that not even the gates of hell would stop it. That it would continue to advance, that he would build his kingdom. And Paul and the Corinthians, they were in Christ and they shared in his triumph. And us too, we are in Christ. We share in his triumph. We share in his triumph. Isn't that awesome? Paul compared this irresistible advance of the gospel to a Roman triumph. And so, you know, I would say this, we need to grasp what Paul is saying. We need to grasp a perspective that God's work is an unfailing success in the world today. The kingdom of God is advancing. It is advancing. It is it advancing in the hearts and lives of those who participate in it. We need to understand that. You know, there can be apparent failures of activities. But I take heart. I take encouragement in the fact that the kingdom of God is advancing. We fight from victory, not for victory. We fight from victory. Verse 16, he says... To one, the fragrance from death to death. To the other, the fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? You know, 
Weird thing to think that our lives permit to some people the fragrance of death. Our lives, the life that we have in Christ gives off the smell and communicates to them. My future is death. And if I don't do something about it, if I don't find God, that will be my end and my eternity. We remind them of their impending death. To others, our lives give off the smell and the fragrance of life. Don't you love to get around believers and rejoice in the goodness of all that we have in Christ? It's like encouraging and it's like, wow. You walk away and you're encouraged about the life that we have in Christ. See, the smell of death comes off us to some and the smell of life to others. But Paul says this, who is sufficient for this? I mean, he's going to really dive into this in the next chapter. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, he says this, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to claim anything that's coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Our sufficiency is from God. And then last verse, verse 17. He says, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. I mean, we could point to a lot of examples. You probably know of lots. I know of lots. People who use God's word for financial gain, they peddle it. They adulterate it for their gain and for their benefit. Peter talked about such men in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 3. He says, in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. You know, I'm so thankful that we have God's word and that you can take God's word and I could take God's word and the Holy Spirit, the comforter and our teacher will come and reveal the truth of God's word. You, you don't need a teacher. You don't need some organization to hand you their awake magazine. You don't need some angel to come from heaven to reveal to you the truth of scripture. You don't, need to ever hear me say, you cannot do this without me. You have God's word. And the safest thing you can ever do is spend time in God's word and with him. With him. And, and you, you, know, you know why that's so safe? Because you'll never come up with the conclusion that some groups come up with if you just had the Bible. You, you, can't, you can't come up to their conclusions unless you use their literature. Take your Bible, get into it, devour it, and hang on to the truths. Amen? Let's pray this morning. Trish, you can come up here. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you always lead us forward in triumph. A triumphant procession. Jesus, this morning we acknowledge you as our general, our king your King Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would soften our hearts so like Paul, we would be motivated by an abundant love for people. I pray, Jesus, for where each of us have relationships that are contentious, that God, you'd help us to be forgiving, that you'd help us to forgive and to comfort if necessary. Lord, we, we ask God that you would give us soft hearts. 
Lord, we want to know and live in that triumphant life of Christ. And so God, we, we pray that you'd help us to deal with matters of unforgiveness in our lives so that we would not be deceived by Satan's schemes. Lord, you are Lord of all and over all, and you deserve all of our hearts. And so we surrender to you this morning. Lead us triumphantly forward in you. Lord, if there's any here this morning who don't know you, I, I, I pray that the love of Christ would draw them to you today. I pray, God, that your spirit would speak to their hearts. I pray, God, that they would hear from you your desire to comfort them, to give them peace, to give them hope. I pray, God, that they would hear from you your desire to, that they would draw near to you. And Lord, I thank you that you made the way for that to happen through your son, Jesus Christ. He gave his life on the cross. He died for us. He was buried and you raised him from the dead because he is victorious over sin and death. And Jesus, this morning again today, we, we make a profession of faith that we believe you are the son of God, that God raised you from the dead. We confess you as Lord this morning, Jesus. We pray your gospel would be at the center of our lives. And I pray, Lord, for any lost here that that would become the confession of their lives as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name.